0: Well, this evening what I'm going to to attempt to do is follow on, obviously from the other talks, but also attempt to demystify um, a particular term that if you haven't come across it already and you're doing any reading on Buddhism, you will come across it at some point in time. It's a term which is usually translated as emptiness. Um, The Sanskrit term is Shunyata. And for many people this is mystifying but as you heard me say last night in a kind of throwaway remark it's really easy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Experiencing it is quite different. Understanding it is easy. But in comparison with uh, what we have to do to really begin to perceive this in our lives that's a different matter altogether. This particular term that's being used and I want to obviously laid out initially in how we would understand it and begin to approach it intellectually, and then try and perhaps to see it in terms of our daily lives and our practice, because otherwise it just doesn't make any sense. It's just another little bit of stuff to bob around in your head with, uh, which isn't going to actually make any difference whatsoever. Let me take us back a little bit. Everything, so the Buddha says, depends on causes and conditions. There is absolutely nothing in this world which doesn't depend on causes and conditions. In a way, part of this is encapsulated in the second of the ennobling truths when the Buddha says this particular problem we have, which we call Dukkha, suffering, the usual translation, but you've heard it's a vast spectrum term. This particular problem we have has a cause. Now, I don't know if it ever strikes you, that's actually good news, in a sense, because it means if it has a cause, change the cause, or eradicate the cause, and the effect changes. And in fact, this is, in a sense, the Buddhist recipe for awakening. Change the causes and conditions, or eradicate the causes and conditions which uphold this phenomena which we call samsara, Quite simply, I say quite simply, listen to me. <laughs> what this means is, is, for example, eradicating greed, aversion and delusion. However, eradication isn't simply good enough. It has to be replaced by their diametric opposites. So on the one hand we're eradicating, on the one hand we're growing. We're actually growing instead of greed, generosity. Instead of aversion or hatred, we are growing, of course, kindness, compassion, friendliness. And instead of delusion, we are cultivating and attempting to grow, of course, it's usually translated as wisdom but really means something more like penetrating understanding or insight into the way things are so it's a two-fold program cultivation and eradication growing and weeding is how I would like to put it going back to an agricultural metaphor you're getting rid of the weeds and you're growing the wholesome stuff now this is a causal process one set, one trinity here, what I call the unholy trinity of greed, aversion and delusion, are the conditions, the causes, which, as you've heard me say so far, uphold or sustain and feed samsaric existence. The opposites are what sustain and uphold what I would call the nirvana experience. So from samsaraing to Nirvana. In some senses, both of them having causal conditions which uphold and sustain them. In terms of the movement from Sangsara to nirvana, this means the gradual, gradual eating up of the fuel which sustains it. So if you can imagine, and this is uh, a kind of example is often given in the texts, you can imagine a candle with a flame. The flame only stays in existence as long as the things which sustain it are there. But as the candle, of course, burns up its fuel, eating down slowly, slowly through the wick and the wax, eventually it will go out. That, in a sense, is the model that's often spoken about in terms of the movement from samsara to nirvana. The going out of the candle represents literally the going out of sangsaric experience because it has nothing to sustain it any longer. So everything is a causal process. We've been talking for the last couple of nights about the big causal process. The causal process of our experience, the way our experience is patterned. And this is Sangsaric experience. It's patterned in this particular way. Each element dependent on the previous element. You know, often the image is given on the text of these dependencies of like corn cornstooks that are all propping each other up. So our experience is propped up in this particular way. There is also another version that the Buddha gives, because this particular version that I've given you over the last two nights and gone into a reasonable amount of detail, again, I hope you've got a little bit of a snapshot of it, but there is another version given, because people often mistake this for being how the phenomenal world is also generated, and this is not the way the phenomenal world is generated this is how our world of experience is generated with all the things that I spoke about over the last couple of nights the Buddha gives another version of this which is this is, that comes into being this ceases that ceases so as you can see again it's a case of causal efficacy of one thing sustaining another when the causes and conditions change or disappear the effect will disappear. This leads the Buddha, even in the early texts, to say, well, of course, if that is the case, everything is empty. Everything is empty of intrinsic or inherent existence. This is just another way of saying, but in relation here to everything, not just the human phenomena, that there is nothing fixed. There is nothing essential within it. In fact, mostly when we are grasping after things, people, events, we're grasping after chimeras, we're grasping after illusions, merely projections of, for example, qualities onto the person or onto the objects which they don't really intrinsically possess. This term intrinsic existence, which means own existence, literally the Sanskrit term swabhava, actually means own existence. What does that mean? Now this all might sound very technical. I hope to kind of take it down out of the technicalities into the world of practice towards the end of this talk. What does this mean, intrinsic existence? It means it exists without dependence on causes and conditions. Well, Buddhism is atheistic. I have no hesitation. Years and years ago, I used to fudge it. I used to say, Buddhism is non-theistic. No, the Buddha has no time for God. (laughs) He really does not. He makes great fun of it, the whole notion of there being. In fact, in one particular sutta, he says... um, If there is God, why did he create humans? He created them because he was lonely. (laughs) So he's making fun of the whole notion of theism as it was presented, particularly in ancient India. But if you want a really good example of something that would have to possess intrinsic existence, it would have to be something like God. In other words, it wouldn't have to depend on causes and conditions for its existence. As you can see, any form of theism um, worth its salt wouldn't admit to that—that that, um, God would have to depend. God depended on causes and conditions because that would make whatever it depended on greater than God. Everybody with me so far? Yeah. I'll keep checking on this one because <laughs> the same is true of all. Events. The Buddha is saying there is no event, nothing, literally no thing which does not have a sustaining cause for it. Now from the Buddhist perspective, putting this very much in the practice context, of course this is good news. Because as I've said, alter one set of conditions and change them and you can move from samsaraing to nirvanaring. And that is the whole process. If there was intrinsic existence, if there was something buried deeply in your bodies or your psyches that didn't depend on causes and conditions, it would be intrinsic to you and it couldn't change. Actually, people go around positing this on others, usually. Ever heard of this? He's evil. He's bad. She's good. This is all the positing, in a way of something like intrinsic existence to something. As if they possessed that very quality as something inherent. As if it didn't depend on factors and conditions for something like, well, what something like we call evil to manifest. Or something like goodness to manifest. So what the Buddha is really saying, there is no such thing as intrinsic good and bad. There are no such thing as intrinsic qualities that anything possesses. There is no intrinsic existence to you or I. Remember all that stuff three nights ago about not-self? This is just another way of saying not-self. In fact, when we begin to look for something like self or intrinsic existence... In fact, sometimes the term is transferable. They even talk about the self of objects, which really is only really talking about essential qualities. What we're saying is we don't find it. We find actually, upon examination, that the physical phenomena that we see around us, ourselves, are empty of intrinsic existence. They're empty of any substantiality. And I'll go on later on to talk about the implications of what that means because, and I'll just go and throw out a, a little hint of it, this means we move from a sense of the closure of being to a sense of the openness of being in this world. From a sense of a claustrophobia Where we are buttoned down or nailed down to certain qualities, to the openness that can come with movement and change, in fact, which is really indicative of movement and change. So let me just run this past you again, this little bit. What we're talking about in terms of something being empty is it's empty of something very, very specific. When I say something is empty, it is empty of intrinsic existence. Okay, we can go home now. Let's end the story. <laughs> because that is all it's saying. What it's saying is that the phenomena, you, I, everything else, possesses no essential qualities. Just like the rope that I gave you the other night possesses no one thread that runs all the way through it that makes it what it is. So, things are to use one strange Tibetan text that puts it in this way. Things are thinging; <laughs> 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 they are not things. Because when we have a, a noun like this, it kind of creates stasis, doesn't it? It makes us think of them as being static, unchanging. And really, what this little peculiarity of language in this Tibetan text is trying to tell you is actually they're not. Actually, they're changing. You know, even the most seemingly solid object is changing. It's actually in process, just like ourselves. Causes and conditions are changing. The things themselves are changing. So therefore, you see, what we've done is turn an ordinary noun into a verb. Things thing. (laughs) Or are thinging. All of this is indicating, of course, that they are all empty of anything substantial. Anything like the possession of an essential quality. So this is a lack of essentialism. There is nothing which makes anything what it is. What we have is a phenomena which is merely labelled or has the imputation on it, placed on it, of a name. There is nothing essential to making anything what it is. Now, this was a very radical thought. This is again part of the Buddha's radicality, which in a sense echoes and ramifies through the history of Buddhism. And you'll find this term emptiness in particular occurring again and again and again in later traditions. It's replete in Zen Buddhism and Chan Buddhism. It's there in Mahayana Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism, you know, and all the variants, and it's even there in the earlier texts in a slightly different form, but it's it's present. This notion of shunyata, of emptiness. Now, the term empty, shunya, actually is very interesting. Uh, it's actually derived from a Sanskrit root, which means to swell. Yeah, so something is actually you know, swollen on the outside, but empty inside. There's no substance to it. Yeah. I tend to think of T.S. Eliot's poem here. Do you know this one? Anybody think, can think what I'm going to say? We are the hollow men. <laughs> swollen on the outside with nothing on the inside. And so what the term shunya is really indicating is this emptiness, as I say, of anything substantial, anything intrinsic, any quality. So anything that we say, and this is putting it back into the land of the real, out of the philosophical, anything we say about another, by its very nature, is provisional. Any judgment we make is not the point. When I say, for example, i just use these crude examples, when I say somebody is good or when I say somebody is bad, really what am I saying? I see what I judge to be good behavior. I see what I judge to be bad behavior. To then make the move into saying somebody is intrinsically evil or intrinsically bad or intrinsically good, is then to reify behaviour into something they possess. A quality they possess. And what the Buddha is saying, and this is again part of the good news, that they don't possess any quality. They exhibit certain behaviours as we too exhibit certain behaviours. But there is no essential quality which is driving those behaviours other than the coming together of certain mental events and certain forms of consciousness which then get spoken, acted, etc. So we are empty of any quality which is posited to us. Which has got to be good news. (laughs) Because it means, let's face it, that from the Buddhist perspective, from the Buddhist perspective in particular, nobody, absolutely nobody, is irredeemable. Everybody can change. The Buddhist canon, in all its various forms and its various traditions, is replete with stories of wrongdoers who go on to become awakened. Um, You've probably got the first serial killer in the whole of the history of the world, in somebody called Angulimala, in the in the Middle-Length Discourses of the Buddha, who goes around killing people to make a mala, a rosary, out of fingers. <laughs> and, of course, he wants one more. He's got 107, he wants one more. And he pursues the Buddha. <laughs> of course, you know what happens. <laughs> These stories always have happy endings. Indians like happy endings. Um, But, cutting the joking about it, the serious part about it is what is really being said in a slightly form of hyperbole here is that no matter how evil the deed or how bad the deed, it still does not mean that somebody can't change. And the story of Angulimala goes on, of course, as you probably guessed, to result in his awakening he becomes an arahant at this stage. Now, one doesn't have to literally believe in these stories, but what it does show us is that there is this lack of anything substantial which would stop the possibility, I don't say the actuality, because it still needs the work of the individual to affect the change. So Shunyotara is really good news in many senses. But let's just explore it just a tiny little bit further in slightly more technical detail just to make sure you get what it is and what it isn't. It's not saying instead of an essential quality, I've now found the real person. They are empty. It's not saying that. That would be creation of another absolute. You've done away with one and you've got another one. We now call it empty. Nagarjuna, the great um, 2nd century um, monk and scholar, actually says anybody who tries to make emptiness into a thing is incurable. (laughs) Because in other words, what they're trying to do, instead of saying this person possesses this quality or uh, this quality, or this quality, instead they possess emptiness. That's their real quality. Now, to get this clear, what it actually means here, I'm going to revert to a little bit of logic with you. You always want to go back to school and do logic, don't you? Well, in Buddhist logic, um, emptiness is referred to, and this will shake your heads at this time of day, after a long day's sitting, it's referred to as a non-affirming negative. (laughs) As opposed to an affirming negative. Now, really what this is about is the way that we negate things. The way that we actually um, negate anything. Now, I'll give you examples directly from the text here to make this clear. This is an affirming negative. The plump monk Devadatta doesn't eat during the day. Can you see why this is an affirming negative? The plump monk Devadatta doesn't eat during the day. Come on, he's plump. So it's suggesting that he's not eating during the day, but he's eating at some other time, <laughs> isn't it? So in other words, what the way this is defined. An affirming negative takes away something, but suggests something in its place. Now, that's not Shunyata. Shunyata is a non-affirming negative. It's of the form of this the horns of the rabbit don't exist it's just negating something but not suggesting anything else what Shunyatar is doing is negating intrinsic existence that there is any possibility of the possession of intrinsic existence whilst not suggesting a mode of existence in its place Because a mode of existence would then fall into the categories of thought rather than experience. So this great Buddhist thinker called Nagarjuna who really follows in the direct line of succession from the Buddha and really is trying to restate the radicality of the Buddha's message. Nagarjuna's message is probably quite simple and goes something like this, shut up. (laughs) Because he's really stopped trying to stop people rabbiting on about the way things exist. He's saying existence can only be experienced, it can't be conceived. And shunyata is the methodology of removing intrinsic existence. There is another part to this story as well, which is coming right back to the beginning. The Buddha says there is a proximate cause to the generation of Dukkha. That proximate cause is craving, grasping. Shunyata is the antidote to grasping. Now, I don't know if you see that, but if I put it in the question, it says something like this. What exactly are you grasping after? Because it's saying that the quality or the aspect that you're trying to grasp after, is merely an illusion. It's nothing substantial. And let's give you an example here, to try and make this a little bit clearer. And then I'll kind of give you a further example to try and show what's actually going on for us. When I see a beautiful object a beautiful person, it's almost as if they possess that quality intrinsically. That's the very nature of their being. And if I'm under the sway of that particular view, then I want to grasp that. I want to hold on to it. I want it for myself. So when we are grasping in this way, we're grasping effectively after something which isn't really there in any fixed form. Now, you can see this very clearly. And as I say, the sort of further example to this is that, of course, when we say, well there's that beautiful an object in, in the window of the shop and I really would like it but of course I, I realise of course that the, um, the beauty of it is rather adventitious it's you know, just a coming together of various causes and conditions and I don't <laughs> 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 and that there's I, I really know I shouldn't be grasping after it but that's the way it is <laughs> now it's not like that is it <laughs> I'm rather sending it up to make a point here that when we see that beautiful thing and there is attraction, we believe the object to possess that beauty. Equally so, when I believe something to be ugly, repulsive, whatever, equally, I'm trying to move away from it quickly as possible, not because, again, I think it's just causes and conditions coming together that produce this rather ugly object that I don't particularly like. I believe it to be intrinsically ugly. That's the way. That's the way that we actually psychologically behave. So, in each case, and I know these are rather crude cases. So you have to kind of try and think up your own more subtle ones here. But I'm trying to put you know, across as clearly as possible is that we're grasping after something that isn't really there, that isn't really substantial in any form. That we're actually grasping, as I say, after this illusion. But beauty itself, and let's just take that as an example, as you all know, particularly of any of those who know anything think about the history of art, you've only got to see how what is termed beautiful has changed over the centuries, with nothing intrinsic to it. Now this goes right back to something I mentioned the other night, that, of course, what is being posited in terms of of essential existence is exactly that. What would make all those forms of beauty beautiful? And that gives rise to a metaphysical answer. There has to be something like an essence of the beautiful, which they all possess. Ever been confused, but why language... You use one piece of language to refer to quite a number of objects that look quite different. You yeah, know, refer to a chair, and a chair can be a lovely big armchair, or it can be one of these wooden seats in here, and it can be, you know, kind of just a really rudimentary seat. Yeah, you know, use the same piece of language, and why do I use that same piece of language? Well, because there has to be essential chairness to it all. Now the Buddha, and I'm, again, I'm really kind of trying to make fun of it here a bit, because the Buddha is really saying there is no such thing. This is this is grasping after metaphysical entities. This is looking for things which are really, really not there. Nagarjuna is going even further and saying the only way to see the object is to experience it. And when we conceive it, we misconceive it continuously. Because the relation often between language and the objects that we have. Is often a positing of an essential quality that things possess. Now, why does this all matter? (laughs) You might be asking yourself by this stage. (laughs) Well, it matters because this is a rather, I say, technical way of putting it, because we are constantly grasping. And so this is another way of getting a realism about what we're grasping after. What is actually happening? What are we trying to do? What are we trying to fixate on? It's a set of causes and conditions which come together at one stage and fall apart at another. It also affects our human relationships and this is really important because, let's just take a very simple example Um, somebody does something good for me And I now see them as good. Yet they might do a whole string of bad actions after that, but I freeze-frame them as being good. In other words, I've grasped after goodness as almost a possession that they have. Equally, somebody might do something bad but then follow it up by a whole load of good actions, but I don't see them because I see that person as being bad one of the first things we often try to do with people is pigeonhole them in terms of our judgments that we make. So there is no openness to another's being. I don't know if you can see this. There's very little openness because how do we immediately fix people? Well, what's one of the classic ways we fix people? What do you do? Being one of the questions. I had a lovely answer once when I was in in South Africa years ago, 20 odd years ago Um, and I actually fell into this mistake myself and I said to this person um, at the retreat centre there I said, what do you do? and he says, I play at being professor of linguistics (laughs) (laughs) and I love that as an answer I play (laughs) at being you know, because actually that is all it is it's a kind of play it's a very serious, serious one and I don't kind of Um, reduce, obviously, the responsibility that's involved in positions, but we are not whatever occupation we take on. It's not an essential quality. Equally, all of us engage in good and bad actions. But it doesn't make us essentially good, and it doesn't make us essentially bad at all. In fact, as I was saying the previous night, near three nights ago, nudge the process one way and it will go towards goodness. And we're nudging the process in terms of metta, karuna, mudita. We're nudging it in this way. Developing and cultivating wholesome qualities while hopefully at least, even at this stage, if we can't let go of them, and I suggest we probably are not, trying to see aversive tendencies. For example tendencies to grasp after things so the term Shunyata and the whole notion of Shunyata is actually trying to get us to see that there is an open dimension of experience that becomes frozen the moment we try try to think in terms of qualities and categories now Probably you will have all have gathered, even from the meditations we've been doing, your difficult person. Well, you dwell on your difficult person, and they don't seem so difficult after a while. You know? Or the difficulty might increase. <laughs> you know? Or your neutral person suddenly falls into the category of being difficult or neutral or, you know, or even a friend in some way. And so they wax and wane. And this can only happen because actually there is nothing essentially difficult about the difficult person. There is nothing essentially neutral about the neutral person. And there is nothing essentially friendly about the friend. So actually anybody can be in these categories. And they move around. And they shift. Just for the process of the meditation we try to use it but sometimes... For example, different faces will pop up. Different feelings about other people will come in. The categories of personal shift. Now, what's this all about? It's all about the destruction of a tendency to thinking which you and I and virtually everybody possess. Not intrinsically. (laughs) But we tend to do it. We tend to veer towards this. And this is absolutism making absolutes out of things which are not absolute. Well, Shunyata, now I'm really going to kind of turn your head around here. Shunyata is the absolute absence of all absolutes. <laughs> Shall I say that again? I quite like that one. <laughs> Shunyata is the absolute absence of all absolutes. In other words, there is no absolutism. This even goes down further. Some of you may have come across a teaching which is there in the early texts, but certainly taken up kind of big time in Mahayana texts, which some of you might be familiar with. And this is a teaching of two truths: an ultimate truth and a conventional truth. And through my years in Buddhism and seeing people practice and talk about this stuff, I've often got the sense that people kind of elevate, oh, it's the ultimate truth. And then denigrate and certainly react very pejoratively towards, oh, it's merely the conventional. What this particular teaching is trying to get you to see is... The absolute truth is the truth of the conventional. That is what we live, the conventional world. I've heard many questions during the week, arising either in individual interviews or even in the group here, which is something like, how can I direct meta towards a self which, in a sense, is merely conventional? Well, you do it because it's conventional. And that is the only truth. The ultimate truth is the absence of any absolute. And so we are left with the conventional world. This is really important stuff, but I don't know if you appreciate how important it is. (laughs) Because what it's saying is, this is it, folks. (laughs) That's what it's saying. This is it. This is the world we have to. There are no metaphysical heavens for us to disappear off to. Um, The ultimate truth sounds like a truth of a higher reality. No. The Buddha is putting us back down here where we are. Back into our conventional world, back into our ordinary worlds, but making it extraordinary. trying to bring back, in some sense, the extraordinariness to ordinary experience and ordinary life, but now, with a turning and a transformation of mind towards that ordinary, which changes everything. So we still live the conventional world, but with a transformed mind. Because there is no other world. This is why... Nagarjuna, for example, picking up on elements in the early text, says sangsara and nirvana are the same thing. Sangsara is not one place and nirvana another. This is your nirvana. If you radically transform your mind. If you radically transform your way of being. To move from this closure, and I haven't really touched on this yet, but this closure into discrete entities with qualities, such as goodness and badness and occupations and all the things that we try and pigeonhole people into, into a world which, of course, given the causal nature, is interconnected. So rather than discrete islands, what we have with this notion of no absolutism, no rarefication of anything, is a world of radical interdependency. This is the world that we have. It's a world of conventions. And there is nothing wrong with a convention if you understand the convention. People follow that. I just want to check.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Let's clarify, because if you're having problems, I'm sure other people are. The traditions, particularly the early Mahayana tradition, the early Mahayana texts speak continuously about an ultimate truth and a conventional truth. What is really being indicated in talk about an ultimate truth and a conventional truth, from the point of view, from the standpoint of realizing that everything is empty, is, in a sense, there is no ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is the absence of any absolute that could be called ultimate. So in other words, the ultimate and the conventional come together. The ultimate is the conventional. That is all it is. It's just the ordinary world that we live. Now this is really counteracting a tendency which I think we see nearly always in spiritual traditions to want to buzz off to some other realm. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, you know kind of, I'm out of here. <laughs> it's that sort of attitude. I want to get out of here. Um, and the Buddha really is trying to say, no, this is it. This is where you enact your heavens and your hells. Yeah. It's you know, To use the phraseology that I was using, it's your nirvana or it's your samsara. One is sustained by a set of causes, the other is sustained by a set of causes. Yeah. So it's the transformation, the movement from one set of causes to another set of causes. And it can go either way because there's nothing intrinsic about it. It's just that we, if you like, are nudging the process, the system, in a particular direction on a spiritual path. That is what we're doing. Trying to clarify our perception about the way things are. And what we will discover that the way things are is that they're conventional. That's what language does. That's what the labels do. That this world is nothing other than the world we inhabit. And this is your samsara or your nirvana. That's what I was trying to say. I hope that's clearer here. So in a sense, this might sound very technical, and I hope it doesn't sound so much so now, but a lot hangs on this, of really beginning to see it, of really beginning to see the lack of intrinsic existence moment to moment. Now that sounds like a tall order. Put it in another term, We call it not-self, beginning to perceive not-self, beginning to see lack of fixity, lack of essence to the things around us. And that thereby, in a sense, is an antidote to the continual grasping that we have, the continual grasping and trying to make solid our world. It's what Trumper calls actually falling back into the wisdom of our insecurity. There is no security within this world, so better get used to it. That's really quite a tough one, for, I think for most people, to come to terms with. that this radical contingency is uncertain, and it's all about only the coming together of certain causes and conditions, and there is nothing stable within it. Now the tendency of our human minds is to want to grasp and make solid and make certain. That's what we like. We like certainties. You know, for heaven's sake, I mean, let's, let's take a form of certainty that we really—an uncertainty that we don't like. We want the person who we're with to be the same person. If, for heaven's sake, they change, good heavens! You know, so everything's gone wrong. <laughs> and it's very sad, isn't it? You know, somebody—you know, might be—I don't know in living with somebody for thirty odd years, and suddenly they wake up and go, "You've changed." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as, if, as if there was no possibility of that happening <laughs> now in a way, again joking aside what that is indicating is of course that there is that solidification process yeah, of turning the person into a something or a somebody yeah, and with the emphasis on the thingness, because this something who is the other person, is for me. And if they change, then I don't know where I am. This is the kind of process that's going on. So we're looking for certainties within the other person. We're searching for certainties. And what Shunyatar is telling you is there are no certainties. As a philosopher who used to write in French called Emmanuel Evanas actually used to say, every time you deal with the other, you're dealing with an infinity. When you look into the face of another, you're looking into an infinity, which is always receding your attempt to capture them. Which I think is a beautiful way of putting it, because he's actually positing this as an ethical relationship. actually, If we begin to understand that, perhaps we can come into some degree of ethical relationship with the other, rather than trying to capture them. Jean-Paul Sartre had a very despairing attitude towards human relationships, which he said human relationships was about the, the attempt by one person to capture the freedom of the other. And when they captured the freedom of the other, then they despised them. I think he probably said a lot about his relationship with the Beauvoir, actually. <laughs> it seems to me. But <laughs> that aside... What it is, is the attempt to capture something within, to make certain, to make solid, something within the other person, when there is no solidity. When there is. And in a way, I'm circling around themes I've already dealt with in the week, but in a slightly different way. So actually, as I say, this is very important, because a lot hangs on this. A lot hangs on our way of approaching the other and understanding the emptiness of the other there is a term that's often well variously interpreted but in one tradition this term is interpreted uh, and it's a word you'll know that everything possesses buddha nature you've heard this term i mean imagine most people have tathagatagarbha buddha nature What this term means in, for example, one Tibetan tradition is not the possession of a something, but the absence of something. Which is why the rock possesses Buddha nature, why the dog possesses Buddha nature, why you and I possess Buddha nature, is because we're, in a sense, no thing. We're not possessing any intrinsic quality. No substantial intrinsic existence. So the rock doesn't intrinsically exist. In other words, there's nothing fixed within it. It might be moving a lot slower than we are. <laughs> but it's still, you know, if you one trusts the physicist in, you know in a kind of dynamic here. Um, and we are not fixed either. So Buddha nature is actually the lack of intrinsic existence of all phenomena, which is why all phenomena possess it. So, everything hangs on this. The development of compassion, the development of metta, of maitri, of love, kindness. All of our ethicality depends on, in a sense... Here the word depends on, understanding, albeit at this stage, only intellectually, that there is no thing to grasp after. There is nothing to grasp after. Now this is not saying, and let's get this really clear, because I really don't want you to go away with the wrong impression here. This is not saying this thing or that person doesn't exist. I hope you're not really grasping it in that way. What we're saying is, this person and that thing doesn't exist in the way I think they exist. It comes back to the Buddha's question, how do things exist? No, not, what are they? That question of how they exist, the mode of their existence. The mode of their existence is in not being a thing just one final word really this teaching is difficult as you probably gathered from this evening but it's essential it's essential to understand this lack of constriction in being and what it leads us to is a much greater openness of being, and understanding eventually, and perhaps I'll pick this up a little bit more tomorrow night when I start to talk about some, about compassion tomorrow evening and how this arises out of this, that there isn't this constriction, there is this openness of being. Unless we see that, unless we begin to really see it moment by moment, then our compassion is always limited and it's always very, very constricted here. Okay, I'll finish there. That's tough stuff this evening, is not it? <laughs> just kind of keep you on your edge towards the end of the retreat. <laughs> okay, I don't know if there's any questions arising out of all that. It's, uh... so yeah, it's essentially it's saying there are no fixed reference points and everything is contingent. Yeah, it's just a way of restating radical contingency. That's exactly what it is. You know, this is this is the message that the Buddha really is trying to give us. And, I mean, it's a difficult one for most of us to conceive emotionally, isn't it? Because we're always trying to hang on to something. Yeah, yeah I mean, you, have, you, you gain some sense of security by fixing things. That's right. But it's some reference point in which yeah. to relate in the world that we live in. Yeah. <clears throat> but at the same time I can see that it's, the dy- it's saying the dynamic relationships it's all kind of dynamic relationships yes, and interdependencies which are constantly changing that's right. all the time but it, yeah. that's in some respects that's quite a scary uh, yep. proposition it is a scary proposition Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that it really is saying there are no fixed reference points at all, and in fact, if you think about it again, reflect on it. A lot of who we think we are depends on those fixed reference points we have around us—family, friends. This is why, you know, with, for example, sometimes death of those close to us, parents, and things like that. Sometimes there's a kind of loss of a sense of identity because of it. You know, but it's even more radical than that. It's actually literally everything we try to substantiate ourselves and make ourselves solid through. So we're not only trying to fix the world, we're trying to fix ourselves. Remember I gave you an example the other night, which actually actually comes together quite well with the Buddhist idea, which is you know, Sartre's idea that in fact what we're trying to do most of the time is turn ourselves into something solid, like a table or a chair, because a table or a chair seems to have some substantiality of being, where we are just this open dimension of being. Yet we mistake that open dimension and we try to close it as quickly as possible by um, identifying with labels, identifying with all the things that we have, identifying with all the people who we surround ourselves, identifying even against the things we dislike. I know who I am because I dislike this. So we're doing this all the time. It's continuously as if we're trying to to fix ourselves and fix the world. And it's like a desperate (laughs) holding on. It's slipping away from you. That's what's going on. Um, And the Buddha is really saying, wake up to it. Wake up to that. And actually, in a sense, throw yourself into it. And you'll cease to be scared. because actually the teaching itself becomes a sustaining force to help you navigate these tricky waters, you know, these difficult waters of the fear and the insecurity, which is why traditionally you have this idea of a refuge. What's a true refuge? The Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. Yeah. To help you navigate this scary water of radical contingency. Yeah. Which is why all these things are very important, which bring us together, you know, the human warmth which is there in meta, The compassion for somebody who is, who is in pain. You know, the idea of community, of coming together and the sustain. It doesn't make the world a safe place, but it helps you to negotiate this world. And when we negotiate it fully with all the other things which, you know, myriads of things I'd mention as well, but but when we negotiate it fully with this turning of mind, with this transformation of mind, then it ceases to become so scary. But these other forces, these other things, are, really have to be there too. Community and real human interconnectedness. Now, with the lack of that feeling of interconnectedness, what, what do we get? We get light, isolated, lonely Human beings. That's what we get, and there's an awful lot of it around yeah, in this world at present. Everybody thinking their islands as, is, you know, unto themselves, you know, cut off. And I think that's that's immensely sad. Now, all of this might have sounded technical, but you know, this, this is the reality of not, in a sense, perceiving it, perceiving this emptiness of fixity, yeah? that we cut ourselves off from others, because you're like that and I'm like this. Yeah? and that's a, It's as simple as that. The moment I say, well, you are like that and I'm completely different from you, well, the connection's been severed. in our minds at least, even if not in reality. So beware, I think, that, I think the moral of this story is beware of judgments. because they cut us off. I mean, in a way, it's not, it's not like one big step, is it? It's, it's something
1: that you have to do literally moment by moment.
0: Yes, it is. As it, arises, as it arises in each context. And let's not let's sort of get idealistic about this, because you know, we can get far too idealistic about it. Or let's just see at the moment, let's just see my tendency to want to do these things. You know, the tendency to make that movement, because that's the first stage. That's what you've got to see you know, before you can ever make the freeing motion out of it. You've got to see, you know, for example, like that silly question I asked you. Know, what do you do if it's, as if it's going to suddenly tell me all about this person? Yeah. But it becomes a way, you know, that we we fall in habitually into being able to fix a person through, through occupation, yeah. and we have myriads of ways of doing this. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever had it. You know, can be again a subject for aversion when somebody says, "Well, you're like that, aren't you?" <laughs> and if you have recoiled from that. Because if you feel that somebody's trying to fix you, to pin you down. Now, if we feel like that, well, others feel like that too when we do that to them, and fixing them down in terms of quality. You, know, you must be this kind of person because you like this. You must be this kind of person because you dislike that. <laughs> and so on and so forth. I mean, there are myri- myriads and myriads of ways of, that we do and try to create this fixity. Yeah. And what this teaching is really telling is really begin to look at that process to be suspicious of our pigeonholing and if we do do it always see it as provisional it's like making a judgment and we have to make judgments we we have to negotiate our way around the world making judgments but the trouble is we believe in our judgments they become fixed judgments rather than provisional and tentative that was a rather long answer to a very short question (laughs) (laughs) I tend to do that
1: yeah
2: Then mm-hmm. I had this question, i you know, what am I doing? You know, what what this is nonsense, you know. I'm saying, may I be happy? You know, what in the world is does it mean this happy? You know, you know, it is a word, and I look at it and you know it, it is empty, you know, it's just a word, but it is electrified with meaning. Mm. mm
0: Okay. I was, um, well, can, can I...
2: Well, then I thought, oh, I said, oh, no, no, this is... Oh, yes, this is fine. Because then I thought, this is wholesome. It's really... It's really... you know, It makes me, you know, open and warm and, mm-hmm. you know... So, in a way, I accepted it because I saw it as a wholesome
0: reaching out. mm mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Let me give you my response to this business. Because in using language, what are you using? You're using a system of conventions. That's exactly what it is. So really when you say, may I be happy, you're saying, may I not be sad. (laughs) Really, that's what it's saying. And that can mean whatever it means at this stage for you. It doesn't really, really matter, I think. What you're really saying is the movement away from pain, the movement away from sadness. But, of course, when we're in the world of language, we're totally in the world of conventions. We're in the world of oppositions, for example. Um, And there's nothing wrong with that, as long as we don't mistake the language for being the experience. Well, the, the, let me just come back again to saying, in a sense, slightly differently what I've just said, is that the world of conventions, there's nothing wrong with it. That's really part of what this teaching is about. We live in a world of conventions, and that we happen to call, you know, four legs and a back and a seat, a chair, is just arbitrary. We could call it a dog, if we could get everybody else to agree, in the world of English users, that it was a dog. You know, we could call the dog a chair. <laughs> you know, it's as arbitrary as that, but we understand this world of conventions so much so that if I refer to the chair as a dog, you'll go, What? <laughs> you know, so there's nothing wrong with this world of conventions because we understand this world of conventions. But it's understanding also that the convention is not the thing, you know, it's not the thing itself. That there is no fixed relationship between any piece of language and any piece of phenomena that we have. There is no fixed relationship. Otherwise, words wouldn't slip and slide around, as Eliot puts it. You know, they slip and slide and break and crack. You know, and they take up new meanings. Um, we see that all the time. That's, that's the dynamic of language itself. And what I would say, say is there's no problem with that. The breakthrough is seeing... The conventional as conventional. That is all. That's where the breakthrough comes. In seeing the conventional world as it is and knowing that it is as it is and that there is no problem with that. But let's not mistake it for being the experience. Let's not mistake it. In later Buddhist philosophy, I won't go into this, but in later Buddhist thought, for example, they try to explain things like... um, Perceptual error. And it's claimed actually the error doesn't occur at the level of perception at all. Perception is always directly of the object, whatever it is. The error occurs at the level of conception. When we misapply a concept to an experience. So, for example, this is a very important example in India mistaking a rope as a snake or a snake as a rope. <laughs> Yeah, a lot hangs on that when you're in India but it's saying when I perceive the rope as a snake what I've done is just misapply a concept to a particular phenomena and it's getting back in a sense to that bare perception of the object but we'll still continue to operate within the language of the conventional so in other words the conceptual world is a map, a grid, however you want to say it, is laid on our experience, but it doesn't capture it. It doesn't capture it totally. It can never do. It was never required to do that. But because we learn, well, or as, you know, for example, the German philosopher Heidegger puts it, I mean, we're saturated in language. We believe that the language is the experience. Yeah. So the breakthrough is not into another world, but understanding this world correctly and not making mistakes about it. That's what we're breaking through to. Breaking through into our ordinary world and actually understanding it. Beginning to experience joy in the ordinariness of the world. And experiencing as this, well, I, the, way I, the only way I can put it is this open dimension as opposed to this closed and constricted dimension of discrete objects all cut off from each other. And I'm obviously specifically thinking of the human realm here. All cut off from each other, not seeing the interrelationship and the dynamics between them. That's what we're really trying to indicate with this teaching. You can't after what I've just said. And sort of taking it to an extreme and accepting that
1: there is no essence
0: of John Peacock or whatever. But if you You wouldn't want it if there was. <laughs>
1: I'm sort of wondering. The question is, what would be left? And listen, the answer, and on the basis of everything you've said, is that nothing
0: would be left. But one would still see some sort of... of course, because we're used to applying labels. Now, what I really want to get you to see about this is actually, everything is there when we begin to see the relationship of the way, for example, labelling processes occur. And this all sounds very technical, I know, but it's actually experience. You see it directly. You see it, as I suggested, in the way that we label and we keep labelling, saying you're this person, that person. This is all really pretty basic stuff of ordinary existence. However, when we do that, we cease to... We cease to experience something which is really important. Um, And the word... Well, something, you know, well, but let's say we cease to have an experience which is really important. And this experience, I, the only way I can put it, and actually the word in Tibetan is gyma, which is wondrousness. You know? And it's this kind of the, the wondrousness of being, of this wondrous diversity, this magnificent plethora and plurality of phenomena that's around us, you, me, everybody. You know, how many of us experience the wondrousness of another's being? Actually this is where we're going tomorrow in some senses with appreciative joy.
1: I'm thinking of very small children actually yeah. because they yeah. I mean maybe you know pre-verbal children yeah. when they look into your face they're not sort of seeing your age or who you are with your: are right. They're not seeing anything. Yeah. Um, and they just open up
0: yes in fact it's interesting you use that example because the way this is described in tibetan text for example this wondrousness the experience of being is of a young as they say of a small child going into a temple for the first time and if you've ever been into a tibetan temple it's like disneyland (laughs) you know it's all color and bells and smells and all sorts of stuff and rich hangings and tapestries and all sorts. And it'd be a child going <laughs> like this. <laughs> no. But we don't experience that. That's something that gets kind of lost to us, doesn't it? That, that almost child experience, that experience of the child at the wondrousness of things. Remember what, how you
1: look
0: but remember what I said: the judgments that we make, if we hold them properly, are provisional. They're not fixed judgments. Yes,
1: if I stop them
0: yeah. About anybody. Yeah. What, what is left that I still distinguish you from you? It's just it's just the coming together of certain traits and parts and causes and conditions that make this phenomena. Who I am at this present moment in time. That is all. Well,
1: what I'm going to say is, I'm pretty sure I still experience you as the same who you are 10 yeah. down the line, even though all of that is changing.
0: Yeah, but the point, it's not the point, the, po- the main point about this is, is the fixity, the fixity of the judgment, not the experience. It's the fixity of the judgment which is an issue here. That... You know, for example, if you experience me ten years down the line, I will not be the same person. It will be the same continuum, but it will not be the same person. Okay, so
1: maybe that's an important thing about the
0: continuum. That's right. So in other words, who I am in ten years' time is dependent on who I am now, as just who I am now is dependent on who I was ten years ago. And therefore, there will be similarities. That's right. But there is not an identity running through it. It appears that, that which is solid because yeah because it's happening quickly, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, for example, I mean we I mean, again, i don't want, always want to kind of justify things by science, but for example, we know a rock is actually in a state of dynamic movement, you know when we actually begin to examine it, yet it appears to be solid. we know, for example, that a table or a chair despite its solidity has more space within it now now as a convention that's fine but the ultimate way of understanding it is of course that it doesn't possess any intrinsic stable existence that is an appearance now that doesn't mean for example when i understand the table as you know not ultimately having solidity but is actually more about space and so on and so forth it doesn't mean i can't put my notes on it and not like there being
2: no relationship between that's right. and you tomorrow. That, that's continuity.
0: It is that continuity, that's the important thing. That's right.
1: Yeah.
0: It is that the one event causes the other or is dependent on the next event, which is arising, which is dependent on the next event, you know, and so on and so forth throughout our lives. And if there is a chain of dependencies in the garden, we'll go on to argue, of course, there can't be anything like fixed existence at all. Or non-existence. Or non-existence, yeah. So is that middle way, as Jen is saying? I'm aware of the time. (laughs) You should be meditating now. (laughs) He says (laughs) portentously... OK, I'm sorry. What, what I'll do towards the, you know, probably on the final session, I'll open it up for a big general question and answer session as well so that anybody who hasn't got a chance to ask the question that they wanted to, um, there'll be a space for it, that was all I'm saying. Um, so what I suggest we do is have a five-minute break and then ring the bell, if you could, Nick, and then come back for the final session. Thank we you. We
1: need to make one announcement. We oh, need a yes. very
0: kind volunteer to ring the bell. Tomorrow no, Sunday no, morning. No, no, I'm still doing the devils' tomorrow
1: oh, Okay, it's so it's Sunday, Sunday. Sunday. Yeah. morning. Okay, let's forget it. We'll come back to it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> don't be mad. still be bringing misery into your life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Send him meta. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you for listening.